Hi and welcome to the EVJ podcast. Throughout December we're releasing four podcasts based on the news hour sessions given at this year's Beaver Congress. A review of the current literature in four different disciplines, including medicine, reproduction, lameness and surgery, will be released over the coming month. In this episode, Celia Marr presents the recent literature on equine medicine. Just to remind you that all the EVE and EVJ articles are available online uh, through the journal webpages and to thank Beaver Journals who've uh, sponsored this session. So our next speaker is Celia Marr, who's going to update us on medicine. On that theme, I thought I should declare some competing interests uh, for this task. And um, it is, of course, that I'm editor of Equine Veterinary Journal. And by any standards, that's a major competing interest when you're choosing the news. Um, I also wanted to highlight, as Tim has just told you, um, all the EVE and EVJ articles that are um, picked for news are are highlighted and made free in an online um, collection. That, that's actually been going on for several years. That's, that's not related particularly to, to the fact that I'm presenting today. The final thing that we do with this, um, this particular session is that, that First Sight Media, um, who are making the, um, you know, the videos, uh, will also provide us with an audio tape. So we tend to chop it up and make it into a podcast um, and I wanted to take this opportunity to thank in particular Rhiannon Morgan, who does most of the EVJ podcast work um, and has made a tremendous, um, tremendous contribution, I think, by first having the idea and then doing all the work for it. So in, in an effort not to be too conflicted, I thought I'd better look through some other journals. So obviously I looked at Eve and um, looked through the last year of veterinary journal, Journal of Equine Veterinary Science and the Journal of Equine, sorry, the Journal of Veterinary Internal Medicine. And then here and there, I'm gonna pick out some, some other papers from other journals that I just happen to have come across. But these are the journals that I looked at somewhat more systematically. And I wanted to, to start, of course, with an EVJ paper. Um, this uh, paper won the Richard Hartley Clinical Award and it's one of a number of interesting ophthalmology papers that are, are, have come out just recently. And this particular study was an in vitro study, but it was looking at the fact that platelet-rich um, plasma um, has the ability to promote um, proliferation of corneal cells. Um, we've used plasma as a, a treatment in eyes for some time, but um, it's just suggesting that perhaps we would get better results um, with PRP. Um, we, this year, seem to have seen uh, a huge number of keratitis uh, cases. So um, equine eosinophilic keratitis has been a really common problem in, in our caseload this summer. Um, it does it tend to be a problem that happens in summertime. Most of the cases seem to uh, uh, come from group, groups of horses. So um, in our kind of neck of the woods, that would tend to be young horses turned out at pastures. Um, but it's not, it, it can affect horses of, of any age group. Um, the problem can be uh, unilateral or bilateral. And there's a very nice review of this condition. It's currently on early view in, in EVE, but I would commend that to you. These um, uh, images, I have to thank um, Claudia Hartley for them, but it shows the, um, the problem. You get these sort of plaques. So there's one there 
and one there. Some cases will respond to um, topical uh, anti-inflammatory therapy, but, um, but, but many have to go to surgery in order to achieve resolution. So that you know, does appear to be an emerging ocular disease. We don't, the, currently the, the etiopathogenesis is unclear and it's, it's obviously an important area to, to better understand why this disease is emerging. And the third ophthalmology paper I wanted to highlight is this one. I like this paper a lot. Um, mainly because it, it sort of showed what I thought I already knew. I also think it's really practical um, work. You can imagine giving this paper to an owner and that being helpful to them. And essentially they looked at how satisfied or otherwise were owners following enucleation. I'm sure every practitioner in the room will, will know that it can be quite difficult um, to persuade owners um, to contemplate enucleation. Um, but the, I've highlighted one of the statements here. So the, the owners who reported that they were concerned or very concerned, 86.8% um, um, reported that the things they'd worried about just didn't matter after surgery. And uh, over 90% of owners were pleased with the outcome. So I think it's a big deal for people to, um, to decide to do this. But hopefully this um, very practical work will, will be something that you could give to your clients to help them come to a decision. Moving on now to neurology, um, I found this uh, study, which is a retrospective study published in EVE on um, a group of ataxic, a fairly large group of ataxic horses, 62 horses, um, where they had done a very comprehensive standardized workup, including radiography and myelography. Um, it was quite interesting because it gives a European perspective and perhaps a caseload that is more um, parallel to the sports horse world rather than the, the thoroughbred world. A lot of um, CVM work tends to be published about young thoroughbreds, um, but, but I think this is an interesting contrast. So these horses were aged between five and ten years, and most of them were warm bloods. One of the things that really surprised me, actually, was the fact that were relatively few of them had osteoarthritis, but the authors do discuss that, and it's possibly because the horses that they evaluated and had to exclude, um, there were 31 horses that that um, were excluded from the study because they didn't have myelograms, and perhaps it's in that, that group that the osteoarthritis was found. Um, using myelography, they defined um, that many horses have more than one site of compression, and their outcomes, um, I guess there were no real surprise. Only about half of the horses um, survived, um, regardless, really, of whether it was medical or surgical approach. So the grading of ataxia is something that is very pertinent, particularly if you get into the world of insurance. Um, and uh, this is one of several studies. This one came out in the Journal of Veterinary Internal Medicine, which, which shows that, that subjective grading of horses is not, there's not great agreement between observers. So what these guys did was get a bunch of people to look at the same horses, and then they looked at the elements of the neurological exam that we evaluate and try to work out which elements could we agree on? And the answer is not very many. Um, so in 16.5%, they couldn't even agree whether they were normal or not. And most of the horses where that debate was held were the ones that had mild ataxia, which I suppose is, is to be expected. The agreement was good or excellent in, a, um, in terms of whether or not they were neurologic, lame, or ataxic in about 80% of horses. But then once you get into things like truncal sway and asymmetry, 
the uh, agreement started to drop with atrophy, hypermetria, and interestingly, they only agreed on overall severity in about 20% of horses. And just wanted to highlight th this particular issue of, of grading ataxia was discussed at length at uh, an event this summer at, in Newmarket at the, um, at the uh, Palace House, the Horse Racing Museum. Um, the Gerald Lee Memorial Lectures were ha uh, held on the, the theme of Wobbler Syndrome. And all that material, including excellent presentations from Steve Reed, um, Tim Phillips, um, Rachel Piercy and Emil Olson are all available free online. Basically, if you go to Google or YouTube and type in um, Beaufort Cottage Educational Trust, you will, you will find that. Uh, it's a really useful resource, which uh, hopefully we can all share. Um, some of Emil's uh, work uh, has been published this year in EVJ. Um, and what the, he, he and his colleagues at the Royal Veterinary College have been looking at is trying to be more objective about um, identification and uh, measurement of ataxia. Uh, at the moment, it requires quite a complex setup, um, but they have found in this paper that um, in blindfolding the horses um, will uh, improve the ability of these tools to identify ataxia. Um, I guess the next step, hopefully, is to get tools that we can use in practice. Moving on then, in, still within neurology, I found this a really interesting paper, which is probably in the Journal of Veterinary Internal Medicine, looking at hypoglycemia and as a cause of neurologic signs. Now, it'd be no surprise that there are a lot of foals in here, but actually within this study, there were quite substantial numbers of adults, where I think we do tend to overlook um, or dismiss uh, hypoglycemia in adults, um, but the, the fact that they found quite a high number of both intestinal and liver cases with hypoglycemia really emphasizes how important it is to measure um, glucose in all our critically ill patients. And that sort of segues into the big recurring theme in, in internal medicine um, publications, which is, of course, insulin dysregulation. Um, this uh, excellent review article, we published that this last year um, by Dr. Burton and uh, De, uh, Melody Delat. Um, they highlight really that the current tests are either going to identify tissue insulin resistance or hyperinsulinemia, but they, both of those arms are important in insulin um, dysregulation. And in the current practice, we don't tend to um, test both arms. So we're still searching for a better diagnostic protocol that would allow us to identify both of these things. Um, the, Dr. Bersan also um, published some of his research in Journal of Equine Internal Medicine, and I, I like this paper because it was looking it reminds us that insulin dysregulation is not only due to equine metabolic syndrome, and we'll see dysregulation in horses with sepsis and systemic inflammatory response syndrome. So this was a prospective study looking at 58 horses, and the, the, the key thing here was actually the horses that did better um, tended to be able to amount uh, an appropriate pancreatic response. So the horses that, that um, were worse off were those that were actually hypoinsulinemic. Um, I'm going to sort of speed up slightly now and just highlight where uh, research is going with insulin dysregulation. We're starting to see metabolomics 
papers, which might lead to novel tools, and also genomics, which will hopefully give us further insights on the pathophysiology. An important question really is, how does insulin and all this relate to the foot? And so this is nice practical work where they, they showed that horses that have the more severe laminitic changes on radiography do have higher insulin concentrations. And in a review article discussing that point in the veterinary journal, Dr. Patterson Kane and colleagues put forward some new ideas where essentially, traditionally, we tend to th think about laminitis as occurring at the basement membrane. Um, whereas they're um, now hypothesizing that we should be focusing more on the lamellar cells and um, that might, um, stretching of those cells um, is associated with hyperinsulinemia. So it's an interesting and quite complex article, but I would um, commend it to you. And then finally, all I wanted to say about equine metabolic syndrome is just to remind you, of course, that the heart is important. This is really quite a small study. Uh, it's a pilot study involving 19 horses with EMS. And they looked at uh, whether or not there was any evidence uh, cardiac changes, and essentially found that the EM cases had slightly higher um, heart rates, and they also had thicker um, left ventricular walls. The difference, oh, I'm sorry, I've done the slide wrong, wrong. It's the left ventricular wall that was two centimeters versus 1.8 centimeters. So it's quite a subtle change, but um, it does make the point that um, EMS is, it, it can um, have effects on the, um, on the heart which allows me to sort of segue straight into um, what's been going on in equine cardiology. Um, advanced imaging techniques like tissue velocity imaging and strain uh, echocardiography have been around for quite some time now, but we're sort of into the second phase where we're starting to see um, studies in which these new novel technologies are being applied for specific uh, conditions. And, and much of this work um, has been done in, um, in continental Europe by Dr. Van Loon, Dr. Gellin, and others. So um, these are just a, a group of uh, paper, papers um, showing how these technologies can be applied. I don't um, expect that everyone in the room will be rushing out to buy a, a, a tissue velocity imaging, but one thing that you might uh, find yourself using in future are the wearable technologies or using on your patients. Um, so uh, Colin Schwartzwald and his colleagues have published what I think is a really interesting paper in EVJ. It's actually just on accepted articles at the moment. But essentially, this is a simple device that you place against the chest, and it records simultaneously the ECG and heart sounds. The heart sounds, of course, being representative of the mechanical events. So you can link electrical and the mechanical events in, in the heart. So they found that this technology, which is obviously designed for humans, is quite applicable in horses. So that is something that is relatively low cost and may well be useful in the field. And then I wanted to highlight um, that uh, work that we're going to hear more about um, tomorrow. Um, I'd strongly advise you to go to the cardiology session and hear the work that Dr. Van Loon's group has been doing in relation to equine ablation, looking both at an experimental level, they've been studying uh, pulmonary veins, and also on a more applied level in this EVJ article, where they have looked at the uh, three-dimensional anatomy of the heart. 
sort of conscious I'm running out of time, Tim, aren't I? Have I how much time have I got left? Oh, I'm not running out of time. I'll slow down again. Um, oh, we have a question? Carry on. So, um, I'm not going to go through the entire consensus statement, you'll be pleased to hear, uh, but ACVM have published a consensus statement um, on strangles this year, and um, it goes through everything that um, is listed here, so treatment, control, and um, prevention of strangles. So that's a really useful resource um, to, to go to if you find yourself managing uh, strangles outbreaks, as I imagine many of you do. To highlight some of the research papers on strangles, um, this work, uh, Dr. Pesterla is here at the conference, so we'll be hearing more from him tomorrow and on Saturday. But in this particular paper, which was published in Equine Veterinary Journal as a technical note, he's um, looking at the use of real-time PCR to uh, identify viability in streptic, uh, strep equi. And the key point really is, um, is that PCR, will, you will be able to find a, a, a strep equi DNA in animals in which culture is negative. So PCR is, is undoubtedly a useful um, adjunctive aid in diagnosis of um, infection. Similar work, um, again, looking with uh, deep nasal swabs using PCR, the group from Sweden led by Dr. John Pringle um, actually was ex identified a particular um, gene deletion which influenced the, um, what's the word, In influenced the um, severity, clinical severity of a particular uh, organism. In other words, when this gene deletion occurred, the virulence of S, uh, strep equi was, um, was lessened. Um, so that's quite um, interesting work in relation to pathogenesis, although perhaps not immediately applicable in diagnostic terms. But again, in this study, they found that they could find um, strep equi with PCR in culture-negative horses and highlight that just because a horse doesn't have clinical signs, one should not assume that it could not be, that it is not infected and infective to others. Some very practical work on strep equi has been published by Andy Durham, looking at the, how um, strep equi survives in the environment. For many years, we used to quote some pretty elderly work to say that, you know, strep equi can survive for 60 days on wood. Um, Andy looked at how, whether or not he could um, obtain strep equi from, from inoculates on variety of sort of commonplace veterinary things like uh, some wood, the sole of a shoe, cotton overalls, stomach tube, dental rasp, that sort of thing, and basically found that, that strep equi will survive for longer in the winter months than the summer, so damp, wet um, weather promotes the um, longevity of strep equi. Um, so I thought you might like to see some, some pictures of damp, wet weather and what sports medicine clinicians do in it. You'll notice that there are no internal medicine clinicians to be seen in this particular photograph. And again, some very practical work looking at how strep equi survives in the, um, in the environment was published in the Journal of Equine Veterinary Science. 
And this was a bit more encouraging, I think. They were interested in finding out how strep equi survived in bedding. Bedding is a big source of um, uh, activity in our hospital, particularly when horses are infected. So this image that I'm showing you here is how we get the bedding out of our um, medical intensive care unit. And you will appreciate, I'm sure, that that's quite an expensive way to do it. So it's encouraging to hear that actually once strep equi is in the bedding, it doesn't survive for very long. So it wasn't detected after 24 hours. The idea being that the either other microbes that are in the bedding um, are suppressing the, um, or they're able to eliminate the streptococci. So I guess the take home from both of those papers is that it's gonna be in the damp, moist, wet things, um, but perhaps not in the bedding per se. Now, um, Bruce has already um, discussed uh, the importance of multi-resistant bacteria, so I didn't really want to go through all of these papers, but I just picked out, how many are here? Six of them? No, can't even count. Five of them, um, including the one that, that um, Bruce has discussed in some detail. There is increasing evidence coming out about multi-resistant bacteria, its prevalence. We all know that they're increasing. But I think what is another important facet about this is when we first started hearing about this, it was mostly about, oh, if, if vets don't stop using these antibiotics, they're going to influence human health. And then it was easy to sort of point at cattle and sheep and pigs and chickens and things like that. It's now got to the point where actually the, uh, our, the prevalence of antimicrobial resistance is such that it is having a major impact on our own patients. Um, so I would urge you to attend the session that's happening tomorrow on the responsible use for, of medicines in practice if you're interested in this subject. And then just to sort of uh, wind up, really, um, I thought I'd move on to oncology and talk a little bit about the new tests that are, are coming out in, in relation to diagnosis of um, lymphoma. So this case report with an accompanying clinical commentary um, discusses the use of um, PAR, or uh, antigen receptor re rearrangement, and Essentially what they're doing is looking at the um, DNA expressing a variety of markers and in a non-neoplastic um, tissue you would expect a sort of diverse mixture of um, expression of these genes whereas in an animal that has um, neoplasia then you get um, overexpression of certain markers. In a way, it's a bit like um, serum protein electrophoresis, and I apologize if that's a little bit of a, a noddy way of explaining it, but that's what these um, uh, diagrams are essentially showing you here, that, that in the control animals, you get sort of broader spikes, whereas in the case animal, you get um, intense spikes centering around certain, um, certain of these um, antigen receptors. So that can be a useful um, diagnostic aid in neoplasia. An alternative approach is thymididine kinase, which is a cellular enzyme that is upregulated in cell division and therefore it reflects the degree of DNA synthesis. So this has also been shown in this um, study, which was uh, essentially a, a what do you call it, cross-sectional study 
in uh, a group of horses with um, inflammatory disease, healthy horses, and uh, lymph uh, 23 horses with lymphoma, showing how um, this um, enzyme might be a useful uh, marker for lymphoma. And then finally, um, wanted to talk very briefly about, about microRNAs. Again, we're sort of getting out of my area of expertise by quite a long way. But microRNAs are non-coding strands that are important in regulating gene expression, and particularly, many of them are neg negative regulators. Um, Dr. Anna Hollis has published a review article in Equine Veterinary Journal. And at the time she completed that work, she found that there were 61 papers in relation to the horse. I'm sh quite sure by this time there will be a few more. But um, basically, the microRNAs are um, uh, markers that have potential roles in both um, diagnostics and therapeutics. At the moment, I understand there's a fair bit published in, in the context of reproduction, and also it seems to be important in ex exercise physiology. So it's just looking effectively by measuring the microRNAs, you get a handle on what genes are being expressed. So right now it's, it's sort of in the area of science, but I think it's probably not too far away where we'll start to see these, um, at least maybe not in therapeutics, but certainly in terms of diagnostics. Thank you very much for your attention. Would you like to... we, we have one question. I think it's a bit unfair asking you a question on somebody else's study, but would you like, to, because you're all knowing, would you like to see if you can answer it? Yeah, I'll give it a go. So, could the pathogenesis of eosinophilic keratitis be related to increased targeting of anthelmintics via the use of worm egg counts, and thus a potential higher burden of non-gastrointestinal parasites, such as Onchocerca? Okay, my present? answer to that is the person that asked that question already knows the answer. However, I'll tell you what little I know. I deliberately did not mention parasites as a potential cause of this condition, but certainly some of the literature would suggest that possibly parasites um, might, might be an underlying risk factor in, in relation to driving this eosinophilic response, which I think is a hypersensitivity type 1 reaction. Tim, is that right? Anyway, we, the, we don't really know. So we don't even know that parasites are important, um, but I do know that, that, that it's, it's an area of, of research. Do you know any more about no. it than me? No. And so who, who answered the question? Would you like to answer it? I don't know who asked it. Who asked it? Oh, well, we'll find out later. But, yeah, maybe. We just don't even know whether parasites are important. I think, I mean, you're right to highlight that, but I, I, I don't think we know the answer to the question then. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Celia. <laughs>